The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs Chapter 5 How Christ Teaches Contentment Contentment is not such a poor business as many make it. They say, you must be content, and so on. But Paul needed to learn it, and it is a great art and mystery of godliness to be content in a Christian way. And it will be seen to be even more of a mystery when we come to show what lessons a gracious heart learns when it learns to be contented. I have learned to be contented. What lessons have you learned? Take a scholar who has great learning and understanding in arts and sciences. How did he begin? He began, as we say, his ABCs. And then afterwards he came to his testament and Bible and accidents. Accidents is the part of grammar dealing with inflections. And so to his grammar and afterwards to other books. So he learned one thing after another. So a Christian coming to contentment is as a scholar in Christ's school. There are many lessons to teach the soul to bring it to learning. Every godly man or woman is a scholar. It cannot be said that any Christian, of any Christian, that he is illiterate. But he is literate, a learned man, a learned woman. Now the lessons that Christ teaches to bring us to contentment are these. One, the lesson of self-denial. It is a hard lesson. You know that when a child is first taught, he complains. This is hard. It is just like that. I remember Bradford the martyr said, Whoever has not learned the lesson of the cross has not learned his ABC in Christianity. This is where Christ begins with his scholars, and those in the lowest form must begin with this. If you mean to be Christians at all, you must buckle to this or you can never be Christians. Just as no one can be a scholar unless he learns his ABC, so you must learn the lesson of self-denial, or you can never become a scholar in Christ's school and be learned in this mystery of contentment. That is the first lesson that Christ teaches any soul, self-denial, which brings contentment, which brings down and softens a man's heart. You know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise, but if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise. So with the hearts of men who are full of themselves and hardened with self-love. If they receive a stroke, they make a noise. But a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. When you strike a wool sack, it makes no noise because it yields to the stroke. And so a self-denying heart yields to a stroke and thereby comes to this contentment. Now there are several things in this lesson of self-denial. I will not enter in the doctrine of self-denial, but only show you how Christ teaches self-denial and how this brings contentment. First, such a person learns to know that he is nothing. He comes to this to be able to say, Well, I see I am nothing in myself. That man or woman who indeed knows that he or she is nothing and has learned it thoroughly will be able to bear anything. The way to be able to bear anything is to know that we are nothing in ourselves. God says to us, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? Proverbs 23.5 Speaking of riches. Why, blessed God, do, you, do not you do so? You have set your heart upon us, and yet we are nothing. God would not have set, his, set our hearts upon riches because they are nothing. And yet God is pleased to set his, his heart upon us and we are nothing. That is God's grace, free grace. And therefore it does not much matter what I suffer, for I am nothing. Second, I deserve nothing. 
I am nothing and I deserve nothing. Suppose I lack this and that thing which others have. Well, I am sure that I deserve nothing except it be hell. You will answer any of your servants who is not content. I wonder what you think you deserve, or of your children. Do you deserve it, that you are so eager to have it? You, sh you would stop their mouths thus, and so we may easily stop our own mouths. We deserve nothing, and therefore, why should we be impatient if we do not get what we desire? If we had deserved anything, we might be troubled, as in the case of a man who has deserved well of the state or of his friends, yet does not receive a suitable reward. It troubles him greatly, whereas if he is conscious that he has deserved nothing, he is content with the rebuff. Third, I can do nothing. Christ says, Without me you can do nothing. John 15.5 Why should I make much of it, to be troubled and discontented, if I have not got this and that, when the truth is that I can do nothing? If you were to come to one who is angry because he has not got such food as he desires, and is discontented with it, you would answer him, Well, I marvel what you do or what use you are. Should one who will sit still and be of no use, yet for all that have all the supply that he could possibly desire? Do but consider of what use you are in the world, and if you consider what little need God has of you, what little use you are, you will not be much discontented. If you have learned this lesson of self-denial, though God cuts you short of certain comforts, yet you will say, Well, since I do but little, why should I have much? This thought will bring down a man's spirit as much as anything. Fourth, I am so vile that I cannot of myself receive any good. I am not only an empty vessel, but a corrupt and unclean vessel that would spoil anything that comes into it. So are all our hearts. Every one of them is not only empty of good, but it's like a musty bottle that spoils even good liquor that's poured into it. Fifth, if God cleanses us in some measure and puts us into some puts into us some good liquor, some grace of his spirit, yet we can make use of nothing when we have it, if God but withdraws himself. If God leaves us one moment after he has bestowed upon us the greatest gifts and whatever abilities we can desire, if God should say, I will give you them, now go and trade, we cannot progress one foot further if God leaves us. Does God give us gifts and abilities? Well, then let us fear and tremble, lest God should leave us to ourselves. For then how foully should we abuse those gifts and abilities? You think other men and women have memory and gifts and abilities, and you would fain have them, but suppose God should give you these and then leave you. You would utterly spoil them. Sixth, we are worse than nothing. By sin, we become a great deal worse than nothing. Sin makes us more vile than nothing and contrary to all good. It is a great deal worse to have a, contrar to have a contrariety to all that is good than merely to have an emptiness of all that is good. We are not empty pitchers in respect of good, but we are like pitchers filled with poison. And is it much for such as we to be cut short of outward comforts? Seventh, if we all perish, we will be no loss. If God should annihilate me, what loss would it be to anyone? God can raise up someone else in my place to serve him in a different way. Now, you put just these seven things together, and then Christ has taught you self-denial. 
I may call these several words in our lesson of self-denial. Christ teaches the soul this, so that, as in the presence of God on a real sight of itself, it can say, Lord, I am nothing. Lord, I deserve nothing. Lord, I can do nothing. I can receive nothing and can make use of nothing. I am worse than nothing. And if I come to nothing and perish, it will be no loss at all. And therefore, is it such a great thing for me to be cut short here? A man who is little in his own eyes will account every affliction as little and every mercy as great. Consider Saul. There was a time, the scripture says, when he was little in his own eyes, and then his afflictions were but little to him. But some would, have, some would not have had him be king, but spoke contemptuously of him. He held his peace. But when Saul began to be big in his own eyes, then the affliction began to be great to him. There was never any man or woman so contented as a self-denying man or woman. No one ever denied himself as much as Jesus Christ did. He gave his cheeks to the smiters. He opened not his mouth. He was as a lamb when he was led to the slaughter. He made no noise in the street. He denied himself above all and was willing to empty himself, and so was the most contented that ever any was in the world. And the nearer we come to learning to deny ourselves as Christ did, the more contented shall we be. And by knowing much of our own vileness, we shall learn to justify God. Whatever the Lord shall lay upon us, yet he is righteous, for he has to deal with a most wretched creature. A discontented heart is troubled, because he has no more comfort. But a self-denying man rather wonders that he has as much as he has. Oh, says the one, I have but a little. I, says the man, who has learned this lesson of self-denial. But I rather wonder that God bestows upon me the liberty of breathing in the air, knowing how vile I am, knowing how much sin the Lord sees in me. And that is the way of contentment, by learning self-denial. Eighth, there is a further thing in self-denial which brings contentment. Thereby the soul comes to rejoice and take satisfaction in all of God's ways. I beseech you to notice this. If a man is selfish and self-love prevails in his heart, he will be glad of those things that suit with his own ends. But a godly man who has denied himself will suit with and be glad of all things that shall suit with God's ends. A gracious heart says, God's ends are my ends, and I have denied my own ends. So he comes to find contentment in all God's ends and ways, and his comforts are multiplied, whereas the comforts of other men are single. It is very rare that God's ways shall suit with a man's particular ends, but always God's ways suit with his own ends. If you will only have contentment when God's ways suit with your own ends, you can have it only now and then. But a self-denying man denies his own ends and only looks at the ends of God, and therefore therein he is content. When a man is selfish, he cannot have but a great deal of trouble and vexation, for if I regard myself, my ends are so narrow that a hundred things will come and jostle me. I cannot have room in those narrow ends of my own. You know in the city what a great deal of stir there is in the narrow streets. Since the street is so narrow, they jostle and wrangle and fight one another because the place is so narrow. But in the broad streets, they can go quietly. Similarly, men who are selfish meet 
meet and so jostle with one another. One man is for one thing, for himself, and another man is for himself and another thing. And so they make a great deal of stir. But those whose hearts are enlarged and make public things their ends, and can deny themselves, and have, they have room to walk and never jostle with one another as others do. The lesson of self-denial is the first lesson that Jesus Christ teaches men who are seeking contentment. Two, the vanity of the creature. This is the second lesson in Christ's school, which he teaches those whom he would make scholars in this art. The vanity of the creature, that whatever there is in the creature has an emptiness in it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is the lesson that the wise man learned. The creature in itself can do us neither good nor hurt. It is all but as wind. There is nothing in the creature that is suitable for a gracious heart to feed upon for its good and happiness. My brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That's not the reason. The reason is because they are not things proportionable to the immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they're troubled and have not got contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world, and that if they had more, they should be content. That is just as if a man were hungry, and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth and take in the wind, and then should think the reason why he's not satisfied is because he's not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. Yet, there is really the same madness in the world. The wind which a man takes in by gaping will as soon satisfy a craving stomach ready to starve, as all the comforts in the world will satisfy a soul who knows what true happiness means. You would be happy, and seek after such and such comforts in the creature. Well, have you got them? Do you find your heart satisfied as having the happiness that's suitable to you? No, no, it is not here. But you think it is because you lack such and such things. Oh, poor deluded man. It is not because you have not got enough of it, but because it is not the thing that is proportionate to the immortal soul that God has given you. Why do you lay out money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Isaiah 55, 2. You are mad people, and would satisfy your stomach with that which is not bread, and you follow the wind. You will never have contentment. All creatures in the world say contentment is not in us. Riches say contentment is not in me. Pleasure says contentment is not in me. If you look for contentment in the creature, you will fail. No, contentment is higher. When you come into the school of Christ, Christ teaches you that there is a vanity in all things in the world. And the soul which, by coming into the school of Christ, by understanding the glorious mysteries of the gospel, comes to see the vanity of all things in the world, is the soul that comes to true contentment. I could give you an abundance of proverbs from heathens which show the vanity of all things in the world. And they did not learn the vanity of the creature in the right school. But when a soul comes into the school of Jesus Christ, and there comes to see vanity in all things in the world, then such a soul comes to have contentment. If you seek contentment elsewhere, like the unclean spirit, you seek for rest but find none. 3. A third lesson which Christ teaches a Christian when he comes into his school is this. He teaches him to understand what is the one thing that is necessary, which he never understood before. You know what he said to Martha. Oh, Martha, Martha, 
Thou cumberest thyself about many things, but there is one thing necessary. Before the soul sought after this and that, but now it says, I see that it is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make my peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon of my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor and preferment, but it is necessary that I should have God as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ. It is necessary that my soul should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The other things are pretty fine indeed, and I should be glad if God would give me them, a fine house and income and clothes and advancement for my wife and children. These are comfortable things, but they are not the necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever, but the other is absolutely necessary. No matter how poor I am, I may have what is absolutely necessary. Thus Christ instructs the soul. Many of you have had some thoughts about this that it is indeed necessary for you to provide for your souls. But when you come to Christ's school, Christ causes the fear of eternity to fall upon you and causes such a real sight of the great things of eternity and the absolute necessity of those things that it possesses your heart with fear and takes you off from other things in the world. It is said of Pompey that when he was carrying corn to Rome at a time of dearth, he was in a great deal of danger from the storms at sea. But he said, We must go on. It is necessary that Rome should be relieved, but it is not necessary that we should live. So certainly, when the soul is once taken up with the things that are of absolute necessity, it will not be much troubled about other things. What are the things that disquiet us here by some by-matters in the world? And it is because our hearts are not taken up with one absolutely, with the one absolutely necessary thing. Who are the men who are most discontented but idle persons, persons who have nothing to occupy their minds? Every little thing disquiets and discontents them. But in the case of a man who has business of great weight and consequence, if all things go well with great business which is in his head, he is not aware of meaner things in the family. On the other hand, a man who lies at home and has nothing to do finds fault with everything. And so it is with the heart. When the heart of a man has nothing to do but to be busy about creature comforts, every little thing troubles him. But when the heart is taken up with the weighty things of eternity, with the great things of eternal life, the things of here below, the things here below that disquiet it, before are things now of no consequence to him in comparison with the other. How things fall out here is not much regarded by him, if the one thing that is necessary is provided for. Four. The soul comes to understand in what relation it stands to the world. Now by that I mean as follows. God comes to instruct the soul effectually through Christ by his spirit on what terms it lives here in the world, in what relation it stands. While I live in the world, my condition is to be but a pilgrim, a stranger, a traveler, and a soldier. Now, rightly to understand this, not only being taught it by rote so that I can speak the words over, but when my soul is possessed with the consideration of this truth, that God has set me in this world, not as in my home, but as a mere stranger and a pilgrim who's traveling to another home, and that I'm here a soldier in my, welfare, in my warfare, I say a right understanding of this is a mighty help and contentment in whatever befalls one.
<clears throat> For instance, when a man is at home, if things are not according to his desire, he'll find fault and is not content. But if a man travels, perhaps he does not meet with conveniences as he desires. The servants in the house are not at his beck and call and are not as diligent as his own servants were. His diet is not as at home. His bed is not as at home. Yet this thought may moderate his spirit. I am a traveler, and I must not be finding fault. I am in another man's house, and it would be bad manners to find fault in someone else's house, even though things are not as much to my liking as at home. If a man meets with bad weather, he must be content. It is traveler's fare, we say. Both fair weather and foul are the common traveler's fare, and we must be content with it. Of course, if a man were at home and the rain poured into his house, he would regard it as an intolerable hardship. But when he's traveling, he's not so troubled about rain and storms. When you're at sea, though you've not as many things as you have at home, you're not troubled about it. You're content. Why? Well, because you're at sea. You are not troubled when storms arise, though many things are otherwise than you would have them at home. You are still quieted with the fact that you're at sea. When sailors are at sea, they do not care what clothes they have, though they are pitched and tarred, and but a clout about their neck, and any old clothes. They think of when they come home. Then they shall have their fine silk stockings and suits, and laced bands and such things, and shall be very fine. So they are contented while away, with the things, with the thought that it shall be different when they come home. And though they have nothing but salt meat and a little hard fare, yet when they come to their houses they shall have anything. Thus it should be for us in this world. For the truth is, we are all in this world but as seafaring men, tossed up and down on the waves of the sea of this world. And our haven is heaven. Here we are traveling, and our home is in a distant home in another world. Indeed, some men have better comforts than others in traveling, and it is truly a great mercy of God to us in England that we can travel with such delight and comfort, much more so than they can in other countries. And through God's mercy, we have as great comforts in our traveling to heaven in England as in any place under heaven. Though we meet with travelers' fare sometimes, yet it should not be grievous to us. The scriptures tell us plainly that we must behave ourselves here as pilgrims and strangers. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11 Consider what your condition is. You are pilgrims and strangers. So do not think to satisfy yourselves here. When a man comes into an inn and sees there is a fair cupboard of plate, he is not troubled that it is not his own. Why? Because he is going away. So let us not be troubled when we see that other men have great wealth, but we have not. Why? We are going away to another country. You are, as it were, only lodging here for a night. If you were to live a hundred years, in comparison to eternity, it is not so much as a night. It is as though you were traveling and had come to an inn. And what madness is it for a man to be discontented because he's not got what he sees there, seeing he may be going away again within less than a quarter of an hour? You find the same in David. This was the argument that took David's heart away from the things of the world and set him on other things. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. Psalm one nineteen nineteen. I am a stranger in the earth. What then? Then, Lord, let me have the knowledge of your commandments. 
and that's sufficient. As for the things of the earth, I do not set store by them, whether I have much or little. But hide not thy commandments from me, Lord. Let me know the rule that I should guide my life by. Then again, we are not only travelers, but soldiers. This is the condition in which we are in here in this world. Therefore, we ought to behave ourselves accordingly. The apostle makes use of this argument in writing to Timothy. Thou therefore endure hard, hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 2.3 The very thought of the condition of a soldier is enough to still his disquiet of heart. When he's away, he does not enjoy such comforts in his quarters as he has in his own home. Perhaps a man who had his bed and curtains drawn about him and all the comforts of his chamber has now sometimes to lie on straw and thinks to himself, I am a soldier. It is suitable to my condition. He must have his bed warmed at home. He must lie out in the, in the field, but he must lie out in the fields when he is a soldier. And the very thought of the condition in which he stands calms him in all things. Yes, and he goes rejoicing to think that this is only suitable to the condition in which God has put him. So it should be with us in respect to this world. What an unseemly thing it would be to see a soldier go whining up and down with a finger in his eye complaining that he does not have a hot he does not have hot meat every meal and his bed warmed as he did at home now christians know that they are in their warfare they are here in this world fighting and combating with their enemies of their soul with the enemy of their souls and their eternal warfare they must be willing to endure hardness here a right understanding of this fact that god put them into such a condition is what is what will make them content, especially when they consider that they are certain of the victory and that ere long they shall triumph with Jesus Christ and that all their sorrows shall be done away and their tears wiped from their eyes. A soldier is content to endure hardship, though he does not know that he shall have the victory. But a Christian knows himself to be a soldier and knows that he shall conquer and triumph with Jesus Christ to all eternity. And that is the fourth lesson that Christ teaches the soul when he brings it into the school to learn the art of contentment. He makes him understand thoroughly the relation in which he, he has placed him to this world. 5. Christ teaches us wherein consists any good that is to be enjoyed in any creature in the world. We have taught before that there is vanity in the creature that is considered in itself. Yet, though there is vanity in the creature in itself in respect of satisfying the soul for its portion, yet there is some goodness in the creature, some desirableness. Now, wherein does that consist? It consists not in the nature of the creature itself, for that is nothing but vanity, but it consists in that reference to the first being of all things. This is a lesson that Christ teaches. If there is any good in wealth or in any comfort in this world, it is not so much that it pleases my sense or that it suits my body, but that it has reference to God, the first being, that by these creatures somewhat of God's goodness might be conveyed to me, and I may have sanctified use of the creature to draw me nearer to God, that I may enjoy more of God and be made more serviceable for his glory in the place where he has set me. This is the good of the creature. Oh, that we were not only instructed in this lesson and understood and thoroughly believed this. No creature in all the world has any goodness in it any further than it has reference to the first infinite supreme good of all. That so far as I can enjoy it 
enjoy God in it, so far it is good to me. And so far as I do not enjoy God in it, so far there is no goodness in any creature. How easy it would be, if we really believed that, to be contented. Suppose a man had great wealth, only a few years ago, and now it was all gone. I would ask that man, when you had your wealth, in what did you reckon the good of that wealth to consist? A carnal heart would say, well, anybody might know that. It brought me in so much a year, and I could have the best fare, and be a man of repute in the place where I live. And men regarded what I said. I might be clothed as I would, and lay up portions for my children. The good of my wealth consisted in this. Now such a man never came into the school of Christ to know in what good, in what the good of an estate consisted. So no marvel if he is disquieted when he has lost his estate. But when a Christian who has been in the school of Christ and he has been instructed in the art of contentment has some wealth, he thinks, in that I have wealth above my brethren, I have an opportunity to serve God the better. And I enjoy a great deal of God's mercy conveyed to my soul through the creature. And hereby I am enabled to do a great deal of good. In this I reckon the good of my wealth. And now that God has taken this away from me, if he will be pleased to make up the enjoyment of himself some other way, will call me to honor him by suffering. And if I may do God as much service now by suffering, that is by showing forth the grace of his spirit in my sufferings, as I did in my prosperity, well, I have as much of God as I had before. So if I may be led to God in my low condition, as much as I was in my prosperous condition, I have as much comfort and contentment as I had before. Now an objection. You will say, it is true that if I could honor God in my low estate as much in my prosperous estate, then it would be something. But how can that be? Here's the answer. You must know that the special honor which God has from his creatures in this world is a manifestation of the graces of his spirit. It is true that God gets a great deal of honor when a man is in a public place and so is able to do a great deal of good, to countenance godliness and discountenance sin. But the main thing is in our showing forth the virtues of him who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. If I can say that, through God's mercy in my affliction, I find the graces of God's Spirit working as strongly in me as ever they did when I had my wealth. I am where I was. Indeed, I am in quite as good a condition, for I have the same good now that I had in my prosperous estate. I reckoned the good of it only in my enjoyment of God, and honoring of God. And now God has blessed the lack of it to stir up the graces of his Spirit in my soul. This is the work that God calls me to now. I must consider God to be most honored when I do the work that he calls me to. He set me to work in my prosperous estate to honor him at that time in that condition. And now he sets me to work to honor him at this time, in this condition. God is most honored when I can turn from one condition to another, according as he calls me to it. Would you count yourselves to be honored by your servants, if when you set them about a work that has some excellence, they will go on and on and you cannot get them off from it? However good the work may be, yet if you call them off to another work, will you expect them to manifest enough respect to you as to be content to come off from that, though they are set about a lesser work, if it is more useful to your ends? In the same way, you were in a prosperous estate, and there God was calling you to some service that you took pleasure in. But suppose God said, Well, I, have, I will use you in a suffering condition. 
and I will have you honor me in that way. This is how you honor God, that you can turn this way or that way as God calls you to it. Thus having learned this, that the good of the creature consists in the enjoyment of God in it, and the honoring of God by it, you can be content, because you have the same good that you had before. And that is the fifth lesson. Six, Christ teaches the soul whom he brings into this school in the knowledge of their own hearts. You must learn this or you will never learn contentment. You must learn to know your own hearts well, to be good students of your own hearts. You cannot all be scholars in the arts and sciences in the world, but you may all be students of your own hearts. Many of you cannot read in the book, but God expects you every day to turn over a leaf in your own hearts. You will never get any skill in this mystery of contentment except you study the book of your own heart. Sailors have their books which they study, those who will be good navigators. Scholars have their books, those who study logic have their books according to that. Those that study rhetoric and philosophy have their books according to that. Those that study divinity have their books whereby they come to be helped in the study of divinity. But a Christian, next to the book of God, is to look into the book of his own heart and read over that. And this will help you to be contented in three ways. First, by studying your heart, you will come soon to discover wherein your discontent lies. When you are discontented, you will find out the root of any discontent if you study your heart well. Many men and women are discontented, and the truth is they do not know why. They think this, and the other thing is the cause. But a man or woman who knows their own heart will soon find out where the root of their discontent lies, that it lies in some corruption and disorder of the heart, that through God's mercy I have now found out. It is similar to the case of a little child, who is very awkward in the house, and when a stranger comes in, he does not know what the matter is. Perhaps he will give the child a rattle or a nut or something of that sort to quiet it. But when the child comes, she knows the temper. When the nurse comes, she knows the temper and disposition of the child, and therefore knows how to calm it. It is just the same here. When we are strangers to our own hearts, we are powerfully discontented and do not know how to quiet ourselves, because we do not know wherein the disquiet lies. But if we are very well versed soon, but if we are very well versed in our own hearts, when anything happens to unsettle us, we soon find out the cause of it, and so quickly become quiet. When a man has a watch and understands the use of every wheel and pen, if it goes amiss, he will soon find out the cause of it. But when someone who has no skill in a watch, if it goes amiss, he does not know what is the matter, and therefore cannot mend it. So indeed our hearts are as a watch. And there are many wheels and windings and turnings there. And we should labor to know our hearts well, that when they are out of tune, we may know what is the matter. Second, the knowledge of our hearts will help us to, be, will help us to contentment because by it we shall come to know what best suits our condition. A man who does not know his own heart does not think what he needs he has of affliction. Does not think what a need he has of affliction. And for that reason, he is uneasy. But when God comes with afflictions to the man or the woman who have studied their own hearts, they can say, I would not have been without this affliction for anything in the world. God has so suited this affliction to my condition and has come in such a way that if this affliction had not come, I am afraid I should have fallen into sin. When a poor countryman takes medicine, the medicine works, but he thinks it will kill him. 
because he does not know the bad humors that are in his body, and therefore he does not understand how suitable the medicine is for him. But if a doctor takes a purge and it makes him extremely sick, I like this the better, he says. It is only working on the humor that I know is the cause of my disease. And because of that, such a man who has knowledge and understanding of his body and the cause of his disorder is not troubled or disturbed. So would we be, if we did not, if we did but know the disorders of our own hearts. Carnal men and women do not know their own spirits, and therefore they fling and vex themselves at every affliction that befalls them. They do not know what disorders are in their hearts, which may be healed by their afflictions, if it pleases God to give them a sanctified use of them. And third, by knowing their own hearts, they know what they are able to manage, and by this means they come to be content. Perhaps the Lord takes away many comforts from them that they had before, or denies them some things they hoped to have got. Now, by knowing their hearts, they know that they were not able to manage such wealth. They were not able to manage such prosperity. God saw it, and a poor heart says, I am in some measure convinced by looking into my own heart that I was not able to manage such a condition. A man desires greedily to hold on to more than he's able to manage, and so he undoes himself. Countrymen observe that if they overstock their land, it will quickly spoil them. And so a wise husband, husbandman who knows how much his ground will bear is not troubled, that he has not as much stock as others. Why? Because he knows that he's not got enough ground for as great a stock, and that quiets him. Many men and women do not know their own hearts. They would fain have as prosperous a position as others, but if they knew their own hearts, they would know they were not able to manage it. Suppose one of your little children of three or four were crying out for the coat of his sister, who's twelve, or perhaps even twenty, and said, Why may not I have a coat as long as my sister's? Well, if she had, it would soon trip up her heels and scratch her face. But when the child comes to understanding, she's not discontented because her coat is not as long as her sister's, but she says, My coat fits me, and therein she is content. So if we come to understanding in the school of Christ, we will not cry, Why have I not got such wealth as others have? But the Lord sees that I am not able to manage it, and I see myself by knowing my own heart. There are some children who, if they see a knife, they will cry for it because they do not know their strength, that they are not able to manage it. But you know that they are not able to manage it, and therefore you will not give it to them. And when they come to sufficient understanding to know that they are not able to manage it, they will not cry for it. Similarly, we would not cry for some things if we knew that we were not able to manage them. When you vex and fret for what you have not got, I may say to you as Christ said, You know not of what spirit you are. It was the saying of a heathen when they were speaking about his extreme poverty, Not so poor, though I have been very poor, yet I would be poorer. I could be willing to be poorer than I am. As if he were to say, the truth is, the Lord knew what was more suitable for me, and I knew that my own heart was such that a poor condition was more suitable to me than a rich. So certainly would we say, if we knew our own hearts, that such and such a condition is better for me than if it had been otherwise.